Right, we're going to just walk through Holy Week together in a sort of semi-meditative way. This is not going to be a long doctrinal argument. There are parts of the scripture that are like that, and there are parts that are meant to make you stop and think and just be quiet. Someone once described Revelation as like an Impressionist painting. It's not just meant to put facts across. It's actually meant to convey atmosphere. It's meant to convey feeling as well. And there's loads in Holy Week, I think, which is meant to do just that. Next, please. And an amazing week, it certainly is. You know, if you wrote this as a novel, I'm pretty sure that um, the producer would send it back as unbelievable. Couldn't have happened. Uh, too weird, too wonderful, and all those things. And all the things up here, uh, heavenly things, really, um, are present. Next, please. It's all about people coming up against the Lord Jesus, and none of them was ever remotely the same again. (coughs) Good people, bad people, fantastic thing happens, the most appalling things happen too. And quite honestly, we should not have been surprised, because do you remember when Simeon took the Lord Jesus in his arms when he was hardly born? Um, eighth day, he said, you know, this child is going to cause the stumbling and the rising of many in Israel. Something that will be spoken against. And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he says to Mary, and a sword will go through you as well. This is not surprising. The Lord Jesus doesn't leave people unchanged, as we shall see as we walk through. Next, please. So let's start up in Bethany, just before the triumphal entry. Here's the Lord Jesus, gathered with the family, if you like, of faith. Lazarus is sitting there. Just a few short weeks before, he was raised from the dead. Okay? Extraordinary stuff. And then, one of the quiet ones, the prophetic ones in the fellowship, goes a bit crazy and goes over the top. A year's wages, what's that? Average in this country, 15, 20,000 pounds. How would you feel if somebody blew that on the Lord Jesus in front of you on a Sunday morning? How would you respond? She didn't just pour a little bit out of the jar. She broke it. No going back. Absolutely everywhere. The smell fills the house. Utterly uh, unignorable, if you'll pardon the uh, word, which doesn't probably exist. People with their eyes on this world are horrified. People with their eyes on the next world are not surprised at all. Strange thing, isn't it? Whenever you worship, whenever you are praying passionately to your Heavenly Father, there's a clash of arms in the spiritual world. 
There really is. Wonderful in many ways. None of the disciples would have ever forgotten this. Jesus saw to it that we never forget Mary. Because he said, you know, leave her alone. Whenever the gospel is preached, I tell you this, her name will be remembered for this. But it's the beginning of the end for Judas. He can't stand it. He really can't. Up till now, he's just been a thief. And now he becomes a traitor. Isn't it striking how spiritual events happen? They turn many to God. And some people turn away. And that happens repeatedly through this week. Take care how you handle worship. Next, please. God isn't impressed with sophistication. He isn't impressed with outwardness. He looks straight at people's hearts. And he loves worshipping hearts. He really, really does. He says, you know, she did this for my burial. And you know what? It was meant to happen. Extraordinary words, aren't they? Talking about burials. And Lazarus is sitting there, alive. Do people notice? Can people see what's going on? Most of them don't seem to be able to, can they? Also, I think we need to be a little careful criticizing each other when it comes to worship because the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I don't know what your preference is. Whether you love plain song, liturgy, wonderful poetry and all those hymns, or whether you just can't worship without drums. Well, God bless you. God looks on the heart. Go easy on your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, there's a lovely moment I heard of where uh, some person went out of the church saying to the person on the door, didn't think much of the worship this morning, to which the reply came, oh, it's okay, we weren't worshipping you. (laughs) Absolutely right. We weren't worshipping you. When people do things, maybe it's a bit much for you. I tell you it's not too much for God he can cope he can cope next one please I don't know if you know the sort of anatomy of the country there's Bethany further east and then there's Bethphage and then you come to the brow of the Mount of Olives you know that's where that picture of Jerusalem laid out uh, is always taken and it looks pretty impressive doesn't it And the Lord Jesus comes to it. He is bringing, kicking out the Romans, being on a white charger, not at all. He's bringing peace. He's coming in the humility of God. Can you wrap your mind around that notion? And he's bringing God's sorrow to. He looks at the city And in one of the Gospels, it's quite plain, he's in tears over the city because he loves the city. If only you could see. If only you could know. If only you could realise and be tuned in the day of your Lord's coming to you. 
And now you can't see. It's hidden from your eyes. We should pray for better spiritual sight. I really think we should. To be able to see beyond what's happening in front of you. And perhaps also not to be too clever and sophisticated. You might say, well, look, tradition I'm brought in, we didn't do this. Hey, tradition is peer pressure from dead people. It doesn't mean that all these things are useless because most of our problems have arisen before. And it's good to think about what our brothers and sisters thought of them and what solutions they came up with because some of them are really good. And some of them are not so good. Okay, they're useful. But do not let that blind you to what's happening in front of your eyes. You know, lots of people at the beginning, I think, of the charismatic movement, it was strange, it was different. If you had applied the tests in James, does it honour the Lord Jesus? Do these people love the brethren? And so on and so forth. You wouldn't have had too much trouble in seeing God is in this. It may look messy but there's no much doubt that God is in it but many people they couldn't see they could not see and I have to say when it all started I would have to have put myself amongst them but there you are he comes into Jerusalem we've heard about it this morning and people are praising God in the presence of God's enemies you know we sang about that a minute ago didn't we There's nothing wrong with being joyful, worshipping God in the face of God's enemies. Let him worry about that. It's not your concern. But nonetheless, they um, tell, Lord, do something. Shut them up. This is outrageous. This is over the top. They can't see what's happening. God actually has compassion on blindness. And the Lord turns to them, doesn't he, and says, shall I tell you what? If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And being good, steeped in the scriptures, they'd remember this. The one and only quote about stones crying out in the Old Testament is from Habakkuk. And it's in the setting of announcing judgment against people who do things basically that are unjust and violent and awful. And the Lord says, do you know what? Stones crying out. And they would have gone straight to this and think, oh goodness. He's talking about God looking at us in judgment as well. You know, whenever you read a a quote in the New Testament that comes from the old, do go and dig it up and look at the context. You'll be amazed. You think, oh goodness, that's in it as well that I didn't really know. Next. And don't let that put you off rejoicing before God. Yes, you can expect the enemy to push back. It always does. And don't let that put you off a moment. Rejoice in God, in the middle of his enemies. And that is absolutely right. Amazing too, the donkey and the foal of the donkey. We don't know these folks' names who owned them. Nobody knows who they were. 
they were quite happy to say, the Lord says that, off it goes. I, I, I don't hold on to anything. Actually, it would have been important. I would say, you know, animals are money in primitive societies and this kind of thing. And these people don't care. They just simply say, the Lord wants it, off it goes. Isn't that wonderful? Next, please. Now then, how do you feel about the idea that in the power of the Spirit might involve a whip? You okay with that? We're not too happy with holy anger. The Lord Jesus isn't inhibited. Mammon is not going to rule. I think we might need to hear us. Mammon is going to bow to God Almighty. Mammon is going to be dethroned to the place of prayer. Perhaps it's interesting, those of you who come from the conservative evangelical background, didn't say my house is a house of preaching, did he? Although actually, it is that. But first and foremost, it's a house of prayer. The Lord Jesus prioritizes and puts prayer up top. And it certainly pushes money aside. Archbishop Welby wrote a book a little while ago called Dethroning Mammon. Maybe I can recommend it to you. I can't agree with all of it, but it's jolly good. Really pokes you and makes you think, hey, you know, how about we are radical simply in following Jesus? All right? And anything else that remotely gets near lordship in our lives, be it politics or any of these other things that we might think of subconsciously as our refuge and strength, they are not. And the Lord Jesus isn't going to have idolatry of any description. And again, he quotes Jeremiah 7. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Next one, please. How do you fancy a little holy violence? Does it make you uncomfortable? That's okay. Sit with the discomfort and think. Gosh, am I missing things? Next, please. And then we get to things closer to... I, I, I don't have time to go through all the Lord's interactions with the Pharisees, uh, but let me just recommend you to look through them and see how he patiently teaches them while they're busy abusing him, okay? And he does not retaliate, okay? He does not try to trick them and wrong-foot them. He patiently teaches them. Remember that bit that Paul said about church leaders? They must be apt to teach, to be able to patiently instruct people who oppose them. Very easy, isn't it, to get defensive and to push back ourselves against people perhaps we consider God's enemies. Isn't the Lord Jesus' way? It really isn't. Okay, how good are you at humility? <laughs> I'm really good at humility. <laughs> if the Lord Jesus was good at it, just maybe it should be a priority for us, should it not?
Lord of eternity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Nobody in the church is above his other brothers and sisters, nor is he above anything that he might do for them. The Lord Jesus, even to people who hated him and were about to grotesquely betray him, knelt and washed feet. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Don't try to write down notes of all that. You know, let it go over in your mind. The Lord Jesus did that, and he did that to people who loved him and people who hated him. So, you happy to wash the feet of the people in your fellowship you really dislike? You happy to do that with people who betray Jesus? The Lord Jesus said again and again, didn't he? He said, leave judgment to God. Because you will mess it up. God will get it right. Your job is to serve the Lord Jesus. Your job is to be gracious to those even who will not be gracious back to you. And even to the self-righteous ones who say, I'm not going to let you do that. Um, He actually had to say to Peter, 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 calm down. You know, it's nobody is above washing the feet of the saints. They are not. Next one, please. And then there's the Passover meal, which the Lord takes over and subverts, if you like, or you could say it evolves into the church taking Passover. Now, if you go to a set of meal today, um, there are four cups, okay, of wine. They go through. Um, and it's all part of God's promises to the people of Israel in Exodus. I will take you out of Egypt. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will take you as a nation. All of them highly relevant to us. Now, the dinner comes in the middle. Okay, that's where you eat the herbs and lamb and whatever it is as well. And so the third cup, I will redeem you, is called the cup of redemption. And so when the scripture says to us, after dinner, when he had supped, he took the cup. It's the cup of redemption he takes and says, drink this, all of you. I'm indebted to one of my Jewish Christian colleagues who uh, shared all this with me. He said, you Gentile Christians, why can't you get into your Old Testament? There's loads there, you know, and you're just letting it go. Ouch. But there you go. The cup of redemption, you, all of you. Uh, All the people there were Jewish. They would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. We might miss some of it. But it's just so rich. It's just so rich. Next one. Do you remember the Lord Jesus said, I'm come, they might have life. And they might have it to the full. Does that seem extremely odd in someone a few days away from his death? No, he said, this is my body, my blood, which I give for the life of the world. That's the sort of thing you need to go away with and be quiet and turn it over in your mind. It's extraordinary. Extraordinary stuff. Next, please. 
Judas. He had watched the Lord Jesus for several years now. Up close, he had seen all kinds of things. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen and he knows who and he knows when and he knows everything. And as you know, in the upper room after he's washed the feet and they've sat down, it says the Lord was just so grieved in his spirit. So he starts to warn. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples had not a clue who that was. And then Jesus identifies him. Do you remember John said to him at the behest of Peter, who is it, Lord? And Jesus said, it's the one I give a sop to when I dipped in the wine. This is what you did to your honoured guest. You dipped bread in the wine and you gave it to your honoured guest first. Isn't that amazing? Amazing, amazing grace. God reaching out to Judas even up to the last minute. And Judas, with bread and wine in his mouth, decides he will betray Jesus anyway. Extraordinary darkness. It really is. One of the Gospels says, with sop, Satan entered into him. Next, please. The most inappropriate deal in the history of the universe... Extraordinary. Next, please. And then, as you know, there's a sudden change in atmosphere. Judas goes out, and the Lord breaks out in rejoicing with his disciples. Please read through the upper room through this week. Don't particularly try and analyse. Just listen to the Lord's words as he speaks them. They are full of love for his disciples. Extraordinary love, considering how badly the disciples were about to fail him. They're all going to run away, okay? Some of them will deny him with swearing and cursing. It's going to be very ugly indeed. And he doesn't say anything of that. He just talks about how he is one with them. That he is one with his father. His father and him, more than anything else, want them to be in a union with him as well. And immediately spinning off from that, he is passionate about his people being in union with each other. If you like, it's almost his dying request. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love each other. You've seen how I can love you. And this must have resonated as later when they had not really done very well. When the Lord is saying, I loved you from the beginning and I will love you to the end. Now would you please go and bear the family likeness to each other. And that's one perhaps thing, how you can remember that. It's a bit spine-tingling to read through the Lord Jesus' prayer. It's extraordinary. It's not sophisticated prose. It's not poetry, even. It's just somebody talking with his Heavenly Father. And yet, it's profound indeed. Please do have a read-through. It's good stuff. 
And then they go out and, as you know, next please, Jesus ends up all on his own. He asks, he's desperate for human company. Peter, James and John go with him and fall asleep. Okay, and he comes back and wakes them up and he says, please, please, can't you watch an hour? All kinds of things happen in that garden and the Lord Jesus is there in the middle and humans utterly fail in support for the Lord Jesus. And an angel turns up. Let me tell you this, when you are in anguish in prayer about something, you've got angels at your elbows. Remember that, okay? They are sent forth as ministering spirits to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Just remember when you struggle in prayer, you are not the only one who struggles in prayer. In fact, Gregory the Great, one of the early church fathers, used to say, Blessed are you when you struggle in prayer. Join the club. It's not just me. All the prophets struggled. Because, I tell you this, Satan doesn't want you on your knees. It's the last thing in the world he wants. He will oppose you. Don't be put off if you find you struggle to keep your mind on what you're doing. This is a universal experience in the Christian church. Okay? Remember there's angels at your elbow. Your heavenly Father's ears are wide open to you. They really are. Next, please. I don't know whether you watched the film The Passion of the Christ. It's hard to watch in places. It's also quite amazing in some of the acting and choreography. And if you get a chance, go onto YouTube and just put in something like Passion of the Christ, Garden Betrayal, something like that. And watch that little clip. It's almost silent of Judas coming up and kissing the Lord Jesus and then backing away with a what have I done look on his face. And Peter glaring at him in silence and all this sort of thing. Just, it is incredibly atmospheric and it wasn't long before Peter was on the floor as well was it next please coming to an end Caiaphas an accidental prophet do you feel like being an accidental prophet he was high priest that year Uh, actually his father or father-in-law I should say Annas was the power behind the throne, but nonetheless, he was high priest. He managed to last 18 years in post, which is far more than any of his predecessors had done. Um, And he was a puppet of the Romans. He had no option. He was appointed by one of the proconsuls, and he was sacked by one of the proconsuls. And he sees his Lord straight in front of him, and he can't recognize him. And Jesus reaches out to him and tells him in words of one syllable, in language he would certainly have understood exactly what was going on. And he comes out with what you might call real politics. You know, isn't it better that one man dies than that the whole nation perishes? Well, that's what he thinks he's saying. Isn't it strange how prophecy can subvert evil? 
Extraordinary. Next one, please. What happened to him? Well, Joseph ben Caiaphas, we know quite a bit about him through Josephus. Uh, in Aramaic, his name would be Yehosef bar Caiapha. And yes, he was appointed and fired by the Romans. And there's an intriguing snippet. There's persistent legends in the Syrian church that he became a believer. I don't know whether that's true. It's intriguing. It might well be true. I do not think we should be despairing of anybody. You might think of Caiaphas and you think, you evil person, you also sold the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Lord testified in front of him. Did he become a believer? He may have done. Next. Pilate also collided with Jesus. He starts out really hard, doesn't he? Won't you speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to have you crucified or released? And then Jesus actually reaches out to him and says, you know, you wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given you from above. And you can see Pilate softening a bit. And in the end, God sends his wife to him. So there we are. Wives, like scripture, can be profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. (laughs) Next one, please. And in the film, uh, Pilate is talking with his wife, and he says, you know, when this story is told, they will say, crucified under Pontius Pilate, as indeed we do in the Creed. He was recalled to Rome, AD 36, and committed suicide there. We don't know whether he was told to by Caligula, he might well have been done, or whether it was his own, his own idea. God is good to the unkind and the ungodly, and he holds out mercy to them. Next. Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, okay, son of Herod the Great, father of Agrippa, of Acts fame. Absolutely terrifying. The Lord says not a word to him. Not a word. He's the one who was quite happy to dispatch John the Baptist to please his dinner guests. Okay, he was quite happy to make off with his brother's wife and this sort of thing. He was a wicked man. He was actually deposed by Agrippa, who had a, a plot with Caligula, and this guy ended up in Lyon, round about AD 39, we think, and died there. A guy who knew the scriptures back to front and had amazing privileges and decided he had nothing but scorn for the Lord Jesus. Isn't amazing? Grace, tragedy, goodness, evil, left, right and centre. Next, please. One more dreadful and marvellous story simultaneously. Here is Peter. Everybody else might desert you, but I won't. 
Okay. You know, if you try to follow the Lord Jesus in just your own strength, all you'll be given is the chance to try. And that's what happened. There was an immediate reality check. Jesus said, will you really? I tell you this, before the cock crows tonight, you will have denied me three times. I don't suppose Peter believed him, but he said something very interesting to him. He said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Not that you don't fall. Not that you don't mess up. Not that you don't even deny with swearing and cursing that you know me. I pray that your faith might not fail. I think that's extraordinary stuff. I really do. I'm going to say in front of the Lord, in front of all his enemies, you swear and curse that you've never heard the name of Jesus and you want nothing to do with him. How do you come back from that? How do you come back from that? Next, please. This is how you come back from that. The word of the Lord Jesus. You remember the scene after the resurrection. Jesus meets the disciples on the beach at Galilee. And he asked Peter three times, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And it says Peter was hurt. No question about it. But do you know what? That is all it took to undo that awful disaster. That's all it took. We tend to think great of our sins and our failings and our mess-ups. And sometimes we think, well, that's it. That's it. God can't really have much to do with me now. That is the end of it all. No, it's not. Have you denied the Lord in front of his enemies with swearing and cursing? Doubt it. And do you know what? The Lord can simply say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And repentance can hurt, and yet it's joyful. Because the Lord says, come home. Quite straightforward. If you think you've really done things that have wrecked your Christian testimony, or you know, you've said things, or you've hurt people, and you think, I can't come back from this. Well, maybe you can't, but then you're not asked to. You're asked to come in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with a word, he's able to undo it. I think this is unbelievably fantastic. It's not as if he said, well, I'll give you another chance, Peter. Don't mess up this time. God doesn't say that kind of thing. He simply removes it. Next one, please. I don't know whether you remember this old hymn. It's absolutely wonderful, I think, a little while ago. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Please don't ever be put off from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. If Satan says, well, your repentance wasn't very good, was it? It was a bit pathetic. You didn't really, did you? Your faith was pretty pathetic too, wasn't it? You know, weak and wobbly. And just look at your bad days now. 
You say, well, okay, Satan, I can see there could be things wrong with my repentance and faith. I'd better get down on my knees and come to my Heavenly Father now, hadn't I? There is never a time when you cannot go to the Lord Jesus. Whether you think as a Christian you've messed up, whether for the first time you might come to God and say, I cannot make it clean. I tell you, God is able with a word to cleanse you, to recommission you, to send you in his name. Gosh, this is an amazing week. Do enjoy going through it. Some of it isn't easy reading. Some of it is amazingly good reading. As I say, I particularly recommend to you the Upper Room Discourse and Prayer. Have a read through. And as I say, just let it go round in your mind. Sometimes we can be a little too clever. Some parts of scripture are meant to do things directly to our heart rather than just teach us bits and pieces. So can I suggest what we do now is I'll just pray briefly and then let's just have two minutes of being quiet, shall we? Our Father, we don't understand why you love us so. Nor do we understand, Lord, how great wickedness can be overcome and forgiven in a word. And yet we see glimpses of you and it's wonderful. We see glimpses of your mercy and your grace and it's fantastic. Father, please grow our hearts and minds, we pray. Please give us better spiritual sight so we can see what's in front of our nose, we pray. Lord, help us to react to you in praise and worship and not to be put off, even in the presence of your enemies. In the name of Jesus, amen.